want to greet each one in Jesus' name this morning. It's a blessing to be here. Thank you for our visitors for being here. Glad to share our blessings with you. And uh, thank the Lord for whatever has brought you here this morning. And uh, we are always glad to share our blessings. And uh, the Lord has definitely blessed us already this morning and look forward to what he has for us in the message as well. Very fitting song to uh, um, the message of Jonah. Follow me and the challenge of God calling us to follow him. And the other songs of consecration this morning as well. For our visitors, we have been going into the study of the minor prophets. And uh, for me, it's been an enjoyable uh, study, a leap of faith in the beginning of not knowing where to go. Um, Didn't find any other preachers that have preached about the minor prophets. And uh, so uh, there's one sense in which I feel like a pioneer the other sense, I feel like I found some dear friends and brethren within Scripture that uh, have given their life, that have given themselves to uh, preach the Word and to be what God wants them to. So uh, turn with me to the book of Jonah. And uh, how many of you read this book in the last several weeks? Thank you. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, it just seems that Jonah is very unique, the book itself, as we look at it. Um, I felt like I, I knew it because uh, back in my school days, we actually memorized the whole book and said it by memory in one sitting. And so uh, it wasn't like I didn't know the book. And yet, um, there's so many new things here that I'm challenged with. And uh, I want to repeat, as I've said before, that we don't want to get bogged down in the history and geography and the uh, practical aspects of Jonah that we miss the spiritual lesson. So this morning, um, I don't want you to leave here without the spiritual lesson that we learned from Jonah, but I believe that his setting and his physical aspect of his life is uh, definitely one that we can learn from. And uh, God's call to come and follow him and to be where he wants us to be, to serve where he wants us to serve, Jonah is an icon of that belief and of that uh, truth. Um, in a little bit, I'm going to ask you any thoughts or comments or something that you had as you looked at the book of Jonah. First of all, just the simple things. The name Jonah means a dove. And Jonah is often called the son of truth. Does anybody know why? First verse says, the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai. Could be in the original language, it could as well say the son of truth. Amittai means truth. And so uh, they called Jonah the son of truth. And uh, we have right there God's calling for him to go to Nineveh. And uh, I am going to approach this morning this message as though you know the story of Jonah and you know that he ran away from God. And you know that God caught him and, and uh, by, uh, uh, through a storm, and the sailors threw him overboard, and a great fish swallowed him for three days, and he ended up going to Nineveh and preaching there. And then we have the last chapter of which he's unhappy with God because God saved them. 
Um, boys, come up here. Let's find out when when uh, Jonah was uh, when Jonah lived. Okay, there's one. Here's another one. Junior, come over here with me. I haven't looked for him yet. You know where we could find Jonah on here? There he is. Okay. Who is the king? Who is the king of Israel? Who is this? Jehoahaz? Okay. Kingdom of Israel. Jehoahaz. And uh, who is this? Jehoash. Okay. Um... What we have here is a circular timeline, and we enjoy looking where these prophets, these minor prophets are, and uh, we find here uh, Jonah being in same as Jehoahaz and Jehoash, the king of Is- uh, Judah was Jehoash, king of Israel was Jehoahaz, okay? Now let's see, boys stand up, show us where you found Jonah in here. Turn around so they can see, okay? Jonah's right here, Okay? You find yours? Yep. Okay, turn around. Where's Jonah on yours? Right there. Right there. Okay, this timeline is secular. This one is Christian. Um, look at it closely in relation to the other minor prophets. What do you see in the timeline? Look at it. There you go. Look at it. What do you see about Jonah versus all the other minor prophets we've studied? As far as the timeline. What? He was the first one. You mean before any of the others? Who was the last prophet before him? Might be hard to find on this one. Who was the last prophet before Jonah? Here's Jonah. Where was the last prophet? Who's this? Elijah. Elijah. So you think it was Elijah, then Jonah? You really think so? Huh? Who's this? Is that any prophets? Well, you're right. Did you find any between Elijah and, and, and uh, Jonah? Didn't even find Elijah. Well, there's probably reasons. That's secular. They didn't maybe don't believe in Elijah. Okay, thank you. So, in our timeline, we've discovered that Elijah would have been the last prophet... This one shows it a little bit more if you want to look at it later. But Elisha and Elijah were the prophets. And then and then uh, Jonah. Let's come back to the one that I always like, that I like to refer to. And uh, here we have the kings of of Judah, and here we have the kings of Israel. In the middle here we have the prophets. So here we have Elijah, we have Elisha. And then here we have Jonah. So what the boys observed on the timeline is correct, that it seems that uh, Amos would have been next. And uh, um, so it's very interesting that Jonah was probably the earliest of the minor prophets. Now remember that. That's a key ingredient. It's something that we're going to look at a little bit later as we look at history and we look at Jonah's message. And we look at how God worked through these other minister, other prophets, the minor prophets, and the major prophets, Isaiah, 
Um, not only uh, the minors, but we have Isaiah here. We have Jeremiah over here. We have Daniel. So remember that, and that comes in in a meaning of something that was, uh, um, I'm going to say, brand new for me as I studied about Jonah. Um, you saying there was no other prophet in the time of Jonah. Jonah was by himself. As far as I understand, yes. And when we, when we come to Scripture, you'll, you'll see that. Um, well, you saw it on that chart. That uh, Jonah was by himself, yes. And he was earlier on. Um, just some, some, uh, some things that uh, get us a little bit of history is that Nineveh might have been receptive to his message because there were two plagues in 765 and 759, and I did not find out what those plagues were. And there was a solar eclipse in 763 and may have prepared the people of Nineveh for Jonah's message. Now, as you read Jonah, what stood out to you, or what question did you have? I just want to know briefly. Somebody, anyone, what about Jonah? I didn't notice that all the problems he caused, and especially when there on the boat, the boat was the same, that experience, that entire ship's crew was saved. Okay. Okay. Uh, your term of all the crew was saved as in physical, or you think spiritual? Okay. Okay. Um, that's interesting. That's interesting, because I, I, uh, I agree. I, I saw that they said that they believed in God, but I would not have put it to that. That's, that's a good observation. Um, because they obviously wanted to save Jonah. And, and I like the comment you made for all the trouble he caused. Anyone else? Okay. Okay. Verse 7. He had almost fainted, and then he remembered the Lord. Um, and they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercies. I didn't, didn't notice it as much as how you said it just now, Gary. Um, good question. Um, maybe the lying vanity was that he could run away from God. You think so? Okay. Somebody else is going to say something. That, uh, you know, he was. I thought that, you know, he, was, he ran away. That, that's correct. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize that, uh, that after he sat by the, uh, that, uh, gourd tree or mm-hmm. bush, whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's 120,000 people there. Mm-hmm. Why? Why did he want? Why? What was in his heart that uh, that he wanted those people to be destroyed? Okay. 
Good question. Um, I'm going to ask uh, two. One is um, where, when he sat down, what you mentioned, Richard, when he sat down, where did where was he? Where was he physically? Did you notice that? Where was he physically when he sat down? When he made his shelter? East side of the city, but it uses an other word. There's something else. East side of the city, but there's another descriptive word of where he was at. Out of the city. Now that is very, very significant because, um, well, I'll jump ahead to the city of Nineveh. But uh, something for you to realize is that the city of Nineveh had 60 miles of wall. 60 miles of wall. So let's go 15 miles this way. Go to Elkhart. Then we go 15 miles that way. Goshen? Shipshawana. Not quite. Middlebury. Middlebury. 15 miles south. It's not much there, is there? And then we come back 15. And so you see a city that has 60 miles of wall, okay? Imagine that wall, 60 miles of wall. Do you know what kind of wall it was? Wide enough for three chariots. I found three. Did you say four? I found three chariots. How wide is a pony sulky? Six feet. Do they rub axles? 3.6, it was at least 18 feet wide. And I'm going to guess closer to 24 feet wide. 60 miles, okay? Anybody know how tall it was? One hundred feet. Twelve hundred lookout towers that were two hundred feet high. So you're not talking about a little burg on the middle of a little map. It was the biggest town in the then known world. Or city. They knew what they were doing. They had one palace that was over a hundred acres in size. How'd you like to clean that house? A hundred acre palace inside this, you know, and I think a hundred acre palace would very much be possible if you think of a 60 mile wall, 100 feet high with 200 foot, 1200, 200 foot towers. And so um, they were well prepared. They had enough land or, or, or they had done their homework and they could raise enough food inside that city for 600,000 people. So a siege wasn't a problem. They could maintain themselves inside that city for perpetually. They could raise their own food. They could keep themselves going for 600,000 people. Now you mentioned the number 1,200 or uh, uh, 1,000, sorry, 120,000 in the last verse. And then it says that could not discern between their right hand and their left hand. And I thought about us this morning here. If we would estimate how many children are here that can't tell their right hand to their left hand. And I thought, well, maybe we'd have five here. I didn't know about our visitors. But if we had 50 people here and five, and five would not be able to tell their right hand to the left hand, and there was 120,000 of them. How many total people was there if 
were 120,000. Now you're looking at 1.2 million people. If that's the, the, the thing there, but maybe they couldn't tell between right and wrong. Whatever they were, they were young people, and 120,000 was very few people compared to that because I can't imagine the workforce that it took to build that wall let alone feed them and keep them going. And so we have a great city. So we have this great big city, and coming back to where we derailed from this, Jonah is sitting outside of that city, and he builds him a little booth, and uh, Richard asked the question, why did he want to see its destruction? I'm going to say we might answer that in the course of the message. Any other thoughts or comments? Anyone else that uh, saw something within Joan as you read it? Questions? Something that stood out to you? That's what I take it to mean, and that's what other people take it to mean. And some one writer thought that meant there were 840,000 people in the city. Maybe that's more based on a census and how many people. But I found it significant that they could support 600,000 people within the city walls. So that gives us a little bit of thought, maybe. Now, there again... Um, I didn't find out why Nineveh fell, why it's not there. It's totally in ruins today. That would take quite something to destroy these walls, but God did. And uh, so, uh, but uh, I think it means 120,000 children. Yes, Richard. Oh. <laughs> What's the population of Elkhart County? Maybe a fourth of that? I don't know. I'm going to have to to pass on that one. I don't know, Richard. But a city obviously would have more property than, I mean, would have more congestion of people than, but although we have cities within Elkhart County, so... um, yeah, you've got my curiosity as well. I think Jonah is unique in the sense that God sent him to uh, Nineveh. And uh, um, that is something in Scripture that we don't find that often because Nineveh wasn't Jewish. And so we see at an early stage in history of God wanting the Gentiles to come. And uh, we could go into Scripture and and look at that in Isaiah and so on, wanting the Gentiles to come. But I find it very significant, if you would also jump over to Nahum, you see the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. So it's not the only, only prophet that went to Nineveh. So uh, Nahum also will be looking into Nineveh and what, what was there and, and when and how that happened. So, so uh, God had a burden for Nineveh and for the Gentile people. And uh, verse 2 of 1 says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. 
But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah goes the opposite direction of where he was supposed to go. Now, uh, uh, Tarshish was a seaport in uh, Israel and... uh, It's not on here, but it would have been on the seaboard here. And uh, it says that he got onto, went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. Tarshish, they're not sure where it's at. Uh, here's Joppa, right here. And uh, Nineveh is over here. So uh, it's actually on the end of the, or close here, well, it's adjoining of the Tigris River, and I think this is the Euphrates. No, it's not the Euphrates. But we have Nineveh up here. So uh, we have Jonah, instead of coming up here, actually going, instead of going east, he goes west, down to Joppa. And uh, we'll look at that in uh, a little bit later as well. The book of Jonah demonstrates uh, that the God of Hebrews has concern for the whole world. God wanted the Gentiles in to come. Um, it also shows us that he's sovereign over nature and all human affairs. So he made the tempest come. He made the storm come. He prepared the fish. He prepared the gourd. He prepared the worm. He prepared the uh, vehement east wind. And uh, what, I, what I find very interesting about the book of Jonah is that um, as we come out of Obadiah and we barely know what Obadiah, who he was, the book of Jonah is all about the prophet and his message. What was his message? How many verses? Did you notice it even? What was his message to Nineveh? Repent. What else? That's about it, isn't it? Repent. Yet 40 days. Verse 6 of chapter 3. No, sorry. Um, Verse 4. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it of his message. Now the other minor prophets, as we look at it, we we have one chapter, we have 12 chapters, we have their whole message... <clears throat> and very little about the prophet themselves. So here we have a book of Jonah, and we have uh, his message in half of one verse. Does that mean that's all he preached? I'm with you, I don't know. I don't know. I'd be very curious. I would have loved to be there. I'd love to see Jonah, and I'd love to hear him preach. But... Uh, that is all that God has given us to see of Jonah and his message to the Ninevites. But we know that it's, it doesn't even say, um, I will give you salvation. I mean, he was preaching to a secular people that didn't have the Scriptures. How did they know what repent was? Did he tell them? Did they do what God prompted them to? Obviously, they knew something because it says uh, in... Uh, 
Verse 6, when the word came unto the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne and laid a throne from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to proclaim and publish to Nineveh by the decree of the king and nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. He let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works that he turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them and he did it not. So they obviously knew what to do. They heard the message, they repented, they did what they were supposed to. And uh, um, another thing in the book of, of Jonah that I wrote down that it shows is that salvation is of the Lord. And somehow they knew how to repent. I don't know, did they get through Jonah's bad attitude or how it was, but God showed them how to repent. Um, and, and another one is God's gracious offer of salvation extends, extends to all who repent and turn to him. And so uh, um, <clears throat> I uh, appreciate that we have the lesson that God loved the Ninevites that weren't Jews, even in Old Testament times, and he offered them salvation. I truly believe. There's another thing. And as I mentioned, these messages came through because of uh, CLE, Christian Light Publications, uh, Sunday School Quarterlies, and their studies of the Minor Prophets. I'm going to read two things. One is, the book also demonstrates how our prejudice, like Jonah's warped sense of Jewish nationalism, can hinder us from following the will of God. I'm going to read that again. The book also demonstrates how our prejudices, like Jonah's, warped sense of Jewish nationalism can hinder us from following the will of God. You say, what are you saying? New neighbors moved in just down the road from the Yoders. Such an event did not usually create much of a stir in the community. This time, it was different. The new neighbors were, by all appearances, Muslims. Rumors spread that they had immigrated recently from Yemen. Few in the community really wanted to be very friendly with the Bahrains. Were they terrorists in disguise? Could they trust them? The Yoders, too, were hesitant at first. After all, from the look of things, the Bahrains probably hated Christians. The Yoders knew, however, that it was their Christian duty to be friendly to the Bahrains and to try to tell them about the love of Jesus. Remember our devotional? Their new neighbors didn't seem very interested at first. As they interacted with the neighbors, they seemed to test their Christianity in many ways. But the Yoders persisted in showing them the love of Jesus. Finally, one evening at a backyard picnic, the Bahrains confessed, We want to know Jesus as you do. In fact, we've considered becoming Christians for some time. It's the main reason we moved away from our family and friends in the city. And we deliberately chose this community because we knew there were many Christians here. We wanted to see if your faith was genuine. We've hesitated because we can tell that some of the neighbors don't trust us. But you have convinced us that Jesus is real and that we will be accepted in your church. In spite of God's severe chastisement for his disobedience, we learn in today's lesson that Jonah still did not want to witness an Nineveh at all. He did not even feel it was his duty, as the Yoders did. He certainly did not love the people to whom God sent him. God had more lessons for him to learn. So we don't know where our witness goes. 
And let's lay down our prejudices against people and reach out to them the love of Jesus. Does someone remember what some of the last words were that Collier Berkshire gave us as he talked about Thailand and Igo and about ministering here in our community? Does somebody remember what some of his last words were? Maybe if we don't go to them, God is bringing them to us. And he was referring to the Spanish. He was referring to the people that immigrate to this area. Maybe if we don't go, God is bringing them to us. So let's not run away like Jonah did. Let's be persistent in our testimony. Let's talk of God to those that we meet. found it very interesting that uh, as I uh, looked at the book of Jonah, another thing, and I mentioned, alluded to this just a little bit, but a word repeated several times emphasizing God's sovereignty is prepared. And it doesn't say prepared in 1 verse 4, but the Lord, it says that the Lord sent out a great wind. In verse 17, it says the Lord prepared, had prepared a great fish. Chapter 4, verse 6, it says that the Lord prepared a gourd. In chapters, in verse 7, it says the Lord prepared a worm. And in verse 8, it says the Lord prepared a vehement east wind. And I found that very interesting how God was interested in Jonah's life and he prepared these things to talk to him. What is God preparing to talk to us? For all the trouble he created. I like that, Judge. For all the trouble he created. The Lord had certain things prepared for him. The Lord had certain things prepared for him. One more thing about the book of Jonah. Jonah went from first rebellion to repentance to righteousness to relapse. You writing those down, boys? First is rebellion. Jonah went from rebellion... There's four R's, rebellion, repentance. He repented and, you know, repentance is interesting in that we often think he repented in the belly of the whale. In studying this, I wonder if he didn't repent on the boat. When he said, throw me overboard and the sea will be calm to uh, to you. So I wonder if he didn't repent in the boat. So we have rebellion, we have repentance, we have righteousness. He went and did what God wanted him to. Third one is righteousness. The fourth one is he had a relapse. Or he went backwards. He went back into his old attitude. Rebellion, repentance, righteousness, relapse. We could say rebellion was runs from God. Repentance was returned to God. Righteousness walked with God. Relapse, he runs ahead of God. I think I have to read this one in a sense of of Jonah and his testimony. Um, Have you considered the number of choices we make in a day's time? And this again was in our Sunday school quarterlies. Um, A Bible school teacher was trying to help her children understand what it means to obey God. She said Jesus prayed that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
How is God's will done in heaven? Do you ever think about that? How is God's will done in heaven? How do you think the angels do God's will, she asked. They do it right away as soon as they know what God wants them to do, one child said. Since God is watching them, they do it just as well as they can, another child volunteered. They don't try to think of other things they'd rather do instead, the third child added. No one could think of anything else for a while than one little girl said thoughtfully, Teach her. I think they do it without asking any questions. How do we respond to God's prompting in our lives? God calls us to do something that really doesn't make that much sense. God calls us to do something that we really don't want to do. And so we have a whole bunch of questions for him first before we're willing to do it. I like that little girl's response that God, that the angels do God's will without asking any questions. I thought I understood the book of Jonah quite a bit before uh, I came to study for this message this morning. And I'd like to turn you and think about it a little bit different. Turn with me to Second Kings chapter 14. We actually have the blessing of Jonah being mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. We know that Jesus talked about him and talked about his example of being in the earth for three days. So will the Son of God, Son of Man, be in the earth for three days. But in 2 Kings chapter 14, we find something that I believe is very significant. And... uh, I often refer to this book, as you see, because it helps me keep things straight. If you go to chapter 14, verse 23, it says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, of the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned forty and one years. So we have Jeroboam, and uh, this is my favorite timeline again. Here we have Jeroboam. And he's Jeroboam the second, because, remember, there was a Jeroboam up here that was with Rehoboam. Israel, uh, Judah, Israel. Kings of Judah, kings of Israel. So we have here saying, right here in this time, it says that Jeroboam, the son of Joash, so here it's Jehoash, actually, was king number 16 of Israel, and Jeroboam was 17. So Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 40 and 1 years. So it wasn't just a short time. Jeroboam reigned 41 years. He was a long-lived king. Now what do you remember about the kings of Israel? As we've talked about the kings of Israel before, before I turn the page and show you again, what was it about the kings of Israel that we've noticed before? They're all bad. We have the chart here, and we have the kings of Israel listed, and they're all bad. So apparently, by this, we're seeing 
that Jeroboam was a wicked king. Look at verse 24. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. Now Jeroboam would have been Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which was the first Jeroboam. This one first. See, here's Jeroboam 1, here's Jeroboam 2. So what he's talking about and what he's saying is that king number 4. Now we started with 1, Saul, David, and Solomon, because they were together. And so from king number 4 to king number 17, we have them going on in the sins of the of the Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He restored... Okay, so they're wicked. What happened during his reign? Let's see. Verse 25. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering in of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-hefer. So we have several very, very interesting things in that scripture that Jonah was a prophet recognized during the time of Jeroboam II. So that's why he's here. Here's Jeroboam II, here's Jonah. Okay? We've got scriptural evidence for that. We don't for some of the other prophets, remember? So we have evidence of that. Now the other thing we want to notice is that Jonah's prophecy came true. Now, what was the prophecy? The prophecy was that God would restore the coast of Israel from the entering in of Hamath unto the sea of the plain. So God was going to restore to Israel all this property. So that means it used to be theirs, and they lost it because they were sinful. And God allowed Jeroboam to bring it back. Was Jeroboam a good king? Should God have done that? No. He was a wicked king. We read that. Why did God allow Israel to gain all this property, lose it because they were sinful, and now Jeroboam comes, a wicked king, and he gains it back? Why did God do that? I like when God tells us what he does. Verse 26 And the Lord saw the afflictions of Israel, that it was very bitter. They were in captivity. They were oppressed by the neighbors. For there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. There was nobody there to help them. They were by themselves. They lost the property. They were sinners. They had bad kings. And the Lord had compassion on them. And we could go into Deuteronomy and and look at a scripture there. I think we'll do... um, If you want to write it down, Deuteronomy 32, verse 36. And and God is actually saying this, that there's not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And God promises that He would be with them if there's nobody left to look out for them. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 36. But God chose in the midst of a wicked king to come and help Israel because he had pity on them. Okay? Now let's go to verse 27. And the Lord said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now what is he saying? What was the message of the other minor prophets? Do you remember? 
One or two, the few that we've studied, what was their message? God is going to destroy you. He's going to take you captive. Repent. That was the message of all the prophets we've studied up till now. When actually in the timeline, they were after Jonah. Let's read verse 27 again and think about that. And the Lord said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So God hadn't told Israel yet that he was going to take him captive and destroy him. So we're down here to king number 17 already, and God has not yet prophesied all those prophecies that we were studying up till now. Repent, you're going into captivity, you'll be lost into oblivion, there's not going to be Israel anymore, you'll be gone. God had not said that yet. Remember this list? Bad, 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 bad. All the kings. And we're down to king number 17. And God is still having mercy on them. God is still having mercy on Israel. And what he's saying in this verse, he hasn't yet prophesied what the next would be Amos, Isaiah, Hosea. Wasn't the, wasn't the Amos' Amos's message to Israel, repent, God is going to destroy you? So we have a significant break here that I had never seen before, that between Jonah and the next prophets, God had not yet prophesied, you're going to go into captivity, you're going to go into living, you're going to be lost forever, you're not going to be able to be found among people. God is a merciful God. The first kings, approximately 930. Jeroboam died in 750. So we have 220, 30 years that God is giving Israel time to come back to him. And he hasn't yet told them, repent, I'm going to destroy you. You're going to be lost forever. As a nation, Israel. So do you see the break in the message between Jonah and the rest? Just look at that verse 27. The Lord said not or had not yet said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did in his might, how he warred and how he recovered Damascus and Hamath, which belonged to Judah, for Israel was they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. Jeroboam slept with his fathers, even with the kings of Israel, and Zechariah his son reigned in his stead. I guess the message that I see there that was a surprise to me was that God was sympathetic with Israel all these years. All those years. He wanted them to come back. Come back to me. Come. And we have many prophets in that time of which we don't have any writings. Now, I want to take you on a little different journey. Jonah here is what? He must be a prophet well-known to the king. It mentions the king name in verse um, 25. It says that they knew, and here in Kings it's written, that it was by the hand of Jonah, the son of Amittai. His prophecy had come true. Proof that he was a prophet of God. Proof that he was God. Sent of God. Because his prophecies came true. Now, maybe just a tinge, maybe just a tinge of why Jonah wanted Nineveh destroyed. Now, Jonah, I believe, knew that if you didn't obey God, you could even lose your life. 
If you go back to First uh, Kings, I think it's chapter 13, that was where the disobedient prophet was supposed to go home and not eat and drink, and he did, and the lion killed him. I wonder if he didn't know that story. But more recently than that, in First in Kings 20, there was a story of uh, one of the sons of the prophets said to another prophet, said, smite me, and he said, no, I won't do it. He said, when you leave, a lion's going to kill you. And it sure happened, a lion killed him. And so I believe Jonah knew that if God, if he didn't obey God, God was going to kill him, or very likely could have. So I believe that Jonah understood some of those things. That was during Ahab's reign. That was just, uh, here again is Jeroboam. Up here was Ahab's reign. The prophet, disobedient prophet happened in, in Ahab's reign. So it would have been about um, maybe 100 years before, maybe a little more, that it could have happened. So I wonder if he didn't remember, might have known that. Be that as it may, I'm just pro, pro putting that out as an idea. Now, something that I've discovered a while ago, a long time ago, is that often we get our views of stories from story tapes and storybooks and pictures that we've read up till now. I'm going to turn you totally around. And I was challenged with this view. I can't find it that it doesn't agree with Scripture. But I was challenged with this view that Jonah, yes, it says he went down to Joppa. Went down to here, and he got on a boat for Tarshish. And we don't really know where Tarshish is. Some people think that it's as far as Spain, which is a thousand miles away. What I find very interesting, and you know my curious mind, and don't let it get me in trouble, but early on, and if you know today, the Suez Canal goes across here, which is very, very important because the Mediterranean Sea is then, linked, uh, is then linked to the Red Sea, which goes down to Africa, which is uh, as important as the Panama Canal. So the, the Suez Canal, they have early records of early attempts for that. And there's one writer that thinks that he got on Joppa and he thinks Tarshish is down here somewhere. And I wish we would have a map that's big enough. Oh, it just doesn't do it. Okay, you're going to remember your geography lesson in school. But this Red Sea connects all the way down through here, okay? This is Iran and Iraq today and uh, Kuwait and all of these are down in here. And so if you, can, if you come through here, go through the Red Sea, you can float all the way around there. It doesn't say where, it doesn't say where Tarshish is. So somebody thought Tarshish could very well be over into this area. And the whale that, that swallowed Jonah for three days, he said, I'm going to Nineveh. And so as he gets thrown overboard down here in the ocean somewhere, in the Gulf, and the whale takes him to Nineveh, up the river, up the river Tigris, and actually takes him to Nineveh. I don't think you can prove me wrong by scripture. But here the fish goes to Nineveh, and all of a sudden, ooh, there he goes. And the Ninevites say, oh, what's that? Oh, look, he's walking. Doesn't have any hair anymore. The acid of the whale's stomach has eaten all the hair off his body. It's bleached his, 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 
his uh, skin white. And they say, what is that? And he actually starts walking, and he's headed toward Nineveh. Probably not a very good smelling person either. Doesn't look very good without any hair, bleached white. But what it could have done is tapped into the mythology of the Ninevites, of the sea creatures and what comes out of them, and taught them that this is somebody you listen to. What's he got to say? And that's why he only had to preach, what, eight words? Repent. Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. I find that story very interesting. Could God have done it? Absolutely. Is it true? I don't know. But somehow God turned the hearts of those Ninevites, rather than a Jewish person just walking in and telling them, somehow God prepared the Ninevites for his word and his lesson to them. Secular history doesn't talk about Jonah, but it does talk that the Ninevites did come to a monotheism. If you know monotheism, it means a, a worship of one God. And so secular history does show that. And uh, possibly those that followed Jonah and heard his few words that he preached said, this is something we ought to listen to. This is something we ought to listen to. Now, between this is something you ought to listen to and Jonah at, at, at uh, Joppa, we don't know much. So take that story in its setting, okay? We're not going to teach doctrine on that. But somehow the Ninevites saw this is God speaking to us. Why was it so readily accepted by the Ninevites? I don't know. That's still a question for me. But that story gives us maybe a little bit to think about. I enjoy Jonah because, as I mentioned, it talks about his life. This is only the, the only time we see here in First Second Kings is the only time we have Jonah's name mentioned, except when we come to the New Testament and Jesus talks about him. So I believe that Jonah is definitely inspired of God. But things about Jonah's life that I would like to uh, point out is that uh, it does not pay to run away. And I'm going to ask this morning... What are we running away from? God sees everything we do, knows everything we think. Secondly, repent and be willing to die. I believe Jonah repented on the boat, and when they threw him overboard, I think he was, go- he was planning to die. He was planning to die. Thirdly, even sinners tremble at God. The sailors, they honored God because of Jonah, even in his wrongdoings. Now, do you ever see that, that God can use our wrongdoings to save him? Now, if that story of Jonah being coughed up by the, by the whale at Nineveh is true, after Nineveh was saved, how do you think Jonah felt? You know what? If I would have listened to God, and I would have walked... From here to here and appeared as a normal Jewish person, they probably wouldn't have believed me. But because I was disobedient to God, God was able to bleach me white, take all my hair off, and make me a scary looking thing to save these people. I wish I wouldn't have run away from God. 
why, we're coming back to the question, why did Jonah want Nineveh destroyed? I believe Jonah was a prophet that, um, that understood God's plan for Israel. And we saw that God wasn't going to destroy Israel, or he hasn't preached that. But I'm suspicious that Jonah knew that. Because he had seen that and he knew, was familiar with prophecy in the Old Testament and what Moses had said. And he knew that Nineveh was a threat. Now you think, that's a long way away. Well, here's Babylon. This is where they went. So Nineveh wasn't, wasn't, wasn't uh, something not to be afraid of. And so I think the reason that Jonah wanted Nineveh destroyed is so they wouldn't come back and attack Israel because he knew Israel was sinners. He knew Israel was going to go into captivity sometime, even though God had not chosen him to prophesy that. And so he said, I'm going to do my part for my country, and I'm going to go to Nineveh, and I hope they don't repent. I hope God destroys them. And God had to turn him around and tell him, Jonah, I want the Ninevites to be saved just as much as I want you to be saved. That's right. What he prophesied didn't come true. His reputation. You're right. Be concerned for souls, not self. Be teachable. Now you have the question, what about the book of Jonah? Who do you think wrote the book of Jonah? Any ideas? Jonah? I think that's a good possibility that Jonah wrote Jonah. What happened with Jonah after this? What did he do? We don't know. It's not in Scripture. I don't have a big funny story like a fish vomiting up on Nineveh. But we, they did excavate at Nineveh and they found the hill of Jonah. Personally, what I want to believe about Jonah is that what we read in the book of Jonah was his personal, in-depth experience. And I'm not sure there was very many people that found out about chapter 4 of Nineveh. Maybe there was a few. But I wonder if he wasn't sharing his testimony with us as an example. I personally have decided to believe that Jonah was at Nineveh for years to come to teach them and to keep them close to the Lord. To help them follow God. To help them do what is right. And he preached more than just these few words. And he helped Nineveh to come to God. And maybe that's why God sent uh, Nahum to them. Again, and we'll see when we come to Nahum about what year that will be. And I believe Jonah was a dedicated Christian to God. And he's just writing to us his personal experience so that we can learn from it. And that we, we know that we can't run from God. And that we'd better repent. And there's more people out there that need salvation than just us plain people. Or if your skin is white. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. God gave us a soul and he wants us to help others to see him as well. God has a lot of people for us to preach to. I'm going to ask you a personal question. Do you think God gave us this message because we canceled the service at the mission? I'll leave that one for you to digest. Are we selective in who we minister to?
Is it significant that God gave us the example of Jonah today for a special purpose? Actually, if we look at the book of Jonah, we have one of the greatest revivals in history. I don't know how many people there were, as we've talked before. We don't know how many there were there that saved or that were um, saved there. But I do believe that God worked one of the greatest revivals in history in Nineveh. And so God can use us even in our disobedience. And as I mentioned, maybe Jonah struggled with his disobedience and how it worked to the salvation of Nineveh. But you know, God uses, God has somehow decided that he wants to use us human beings in our failures to do his ministry and mission across the world. And if we fail, it doesn't get done. And so let's be faithful. Let's be a Jonah. And I believe Jonah repented, and I believe he was the best minister that Nineveh ever had because of God's work in his life. May we not be ashamed. May we not be... um, I believe that the lesson of chapter 4 changed Jonah's life, and he was different after that. You might choose to believe something else. I'd be interested to know what it is, what it means. I am going to go down through our list of ingredients of the books of the prophets. I know it's not going to be hard. Do you still have your little papers? Ingredients of the book of the prophets. And this is a simple one. The first one is warning of impending judgment because of the nation's sinfulness. What was the warning? What was the warning? I will destroy you in 40 days. For you visitors, we have five questions that we are looking at in each of the minor prophets as we go through them to see what they are. And uh, first one is the warning of impending judgment because of sinful nation. Repent in 40 days I will, or I will destroy you. Description of the sin. Is there any? Not really. It says repent. Description of the coming judgment. Very vivid. 40 days you'll be destroyed. Call for repentance? Was there a call for repentance? What do you think? No? Was there a call for repentance? Yes or no? How many say yes, there was a call to repentance? Good. What was his first word that he preached? Repent. Repent. There was a call for repentance. Was there a promise of future deliverance? We don't read of any, do we? He wanted them destroyed. He said, repent. Which verse is that? Thank you, Paul. It doesn't say repent, does it? It never says the word repent in the book of Jonah. Thank you. The word repent is not in the book of Jonah. Where? 3 verse 9. Who can say if God will return and repent? Okay, that was the king, but it wasn't Jonah. Okay, the words there. I was wrong. Thank you, Paul. It does not say repent in verse 4. You see that? And said, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Thank you. Promise of future deliverance? No, it's not given there. So, let's back up to number 4. A call of repentance. Was there one? You mean I misled you? It doesn't say repent. Thank you, Paul. I believe that through that, 
And may our prejudices about Jonah and whether he said repent or not and all the other things, may we lose them in the true light of Scripture. Let's go to our verse, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. You can probably say it by heart by now. All Scripture, all together, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. That's why Jonah preached. And that's why we still have his book today. Let's not run away from God. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for what you have taught us through the life of Jonah. It must have been humbling for him to write about his own failures and what he did. And we pray, Father, that you would uh, help us to understand that and to grow and to learn by it. To see that you can use our failures for your good. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to run away from you, but to be willing to serve you where you've placed us. Thank you, Lord, that you can use our sins, our running away, actually in a good way, as you did Jonah's. But Lord, our desire would be that we could be faithful without the sin, without the failure, without the doing wrong. And so, Lord, we pray that the desire of every individual here would be to follow you faithfully, to go where you bid without asking questions, to go where you want us to go without uh, hesitating, And may Jonah's life stand true and faithful to all of us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk close with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.